um, and good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Dr. Rebecca Naden, um, and I'm the director of the Global Risks and Resilience team um, at ODI. ODI is a policy think tank um, based in London. Um, and I'm really delighted to welcome today um, you all to this um, webinar and welcome our distinguished guests um, and audiences listening in from all over. Um, today's webinar, we're going to be looking at building resilience and employment opportunities for youth within rural economies in the Sahel. And today's webinar actually forms part of a year-long partnership um, between ODI and the FAO in understanding the current evidence um, and thinking surrounding the factors that influence youth radicalisation in the Sahel and how these lessons can be incorporated actually within the FAO's regional programme for the Sahel um, called Building Resilience in the Sahel, aimed at supporting rural economies and youth employment within the region. Um, and this partnership um, has culminated not only in this webinar, um, but also in the release of a new report um, entitled The Intersection Between Socioeconomic Conditions and Youth Radicalisation, Implications for Programming in G5 Sahel Countries. Um, and a link actually to this report can be found um, in the webinar chat um, and is also available on the FAO website. But what's, what is today's event all about? Well, firstly, um, we do want to present and discuss the report's findings um, with today's guests and you, the audience. Um, and a central part of today's discussion will be to explore both the challenges and opportunities for addressing youth radicalization um, in the Sahel as part of broader support for rural economies in the region. But we also want to facilitate a broader discussion around a subset of questions. So for example, how to support the economic transformation and youth employment in rural areas? And can the issue of youth radicalization form part of, of this process? So we're going to divide the event up into sort of three um, interventions. Um, first of all, um, we're going to have some opening remarks um, from the Deputy Director for Inclusive Rural Transformation and Gender Equality Division of the UNFAO, Dr. Lauren Phillips, and also a keynote by His Excellency, Executive Secretary for the G5 Sahel Secretariat, Ambassador um, Yemdego Eric Tiare. Secondly, after our distinguished um, speakers have given their, their first opening remarks and keynotes, we will then move to a presentation um, of the report that I just mentioned. Um, and this will be followed then by our three guest um, panelists who we warmly welcome today, who will be offering their reflections um, on the report's main findings. And then finally, um, we really want to open up to you, the audience, via a Q&A session, where we're going to encourage you to post your questions um, in the Q&A box. Um, and just to remind everybody, please do put that in the Q&A box, not in the chat box. Um, I'd also like to remind our audience um, and the speakers that today's event also includes English, French and Arabic translation. And these language options can be chosen by the language channel at the bottom of your screens. So you just simply select which language you wish to hear the event in. Euh, je voudrais rappeler au, notre, à notre audience et à nos intervenants que ce débat est traduit simultanément en anglais, français et arabe. Vous pouvez choisir les options de langue que vous préférez en cliquant sur le globe en bas de l'écran pour sélectionner la langue souhaitée. Euh, 
نود أن نذكر جمهورنا والمتحدثين بأن هذا النقاش يتوفر على خاصية الترجمة الإنجليزية والفرنسية والعربية يمكن اختيار خيارات اللغة التي تفضلون عبر الرقم على الكرة الأرضية في الجزء السفلي من الشاشة وتحديد اللغة التي ترغبون شكراً Thank you Thank you So I hope everybody um, got that So now, without further ado, I'd like to hand over to our first um, distinguished speaker, Dr. Lauren Phillips, Deputy, Executive, Deputy Director of Inclusive Rural Transmission and Gender Equality Division. The division works on the FAO's social and poverty mandate, contributing to no poverty, zero hunger and reduced in inequalities. And prior to joining the FEO, Lauren worked in a variety of policy and strategy advisory roles, such as the International Fund for Agricultural Development. She holds a PhD in International Political Economy from LSE and a master's and undergraduate degrees from Stanford University. Um, Dr. Phillips, over to you. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for the warm welcome, and thank you, colleagues. Um, I've seen the note about speaking clearly with interpretations, so I will try to do so. Um, it's always nice to be with ODI colleagues again. Um, uh, Rebecca didn't mention, but I, I worked at ODI some time ago, a number of years ago, and so it's always nice to be back uh, at ODI. And I'm very pleased to introduce this report on behalf of FAO and more specifically the team um, who works on youth employment issues within, within um, our division. So allow me to set out some context before briefly saying something about the report itself and passing over to the, the distinguished ambassador. Um, in 2020, just before the COVID-19 pandemic, we know that fragile contexts were home to 23% of the world's population and also to more than 75% of all of those people who are living in extreme poverty globally. We also, of course, know that fragility strongly hinders sustainable development. And since the launch of the 20, 2030 agenda, well, fortunately, absolute poverty as a percentage of the world population has declined, um, the progress on SDGs has been very slow in fragile contexts. Fragility can lead to negative outcomes, including violence, deep poverty, inequality, unemployment, displacement, and both environmental and political degradation. The Sahel region specifically, of course, faces various complex and interconnected challenges, such as recurring epidemics, climatic variations, irregular rainfall, and all of these pose major obstacles to food security and to poverty reduction. Tensions in the region are also intensified by instability and insecurity, and the continued violence is leading to large-scale displacement. At the same time, the Sahel is also experiencing a demographic transition characterized by growing population. The region is home to more than 75 million people, and around a third of them are aged 15 to 34. 60% are below the age of 25. Two thirds of them live in rural areas and often lack access to employment, skills, financial services, and technology. By 2050, in fact, it's projected that the number of young people aged 15 to 35 in the region will increase by 46 million. So it's increasingly emphasized that compared to other parts of the world where populations are aging, countries with large numbers of young people like those in the Sahel can reap a demographic dividend for national development. But the dividend will not materialize automatically. In fragile contexts, the youth often have limited opportunities to contribute to development. Um, in the countries of Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mali Mauritania, and Niger, 
Um, 41 million people under the age of 25 are considered at risk of radicalization or migration. Given that the region is also a departure point for migrations and for migrants and a key corridor for migration routes. One of the factors contributing to young people's vulnerability towards negative coping mechanisms is the lack of economic opportunities. Yet in particular in countries affected by fragility, a range of various other triggers also are determinants of youth's potential process of radicalization. This is some of the topics that we'll be discussing today. Countries that fail to generate high and sustainable levels of growth and create decent jobs for young people, um, which can in turn help to reduce poverty and improve equality, um, also face challenges on controlling corruption, managing relationships amongst different communities in line with their human rights obligations, and are more prone to violent extremism. They tend to witness a greater number of incidents linked to youth radicalization. And in such contexts, a, a sense of urgency to include young people as game changers and actors in restoring the social fabric that has been eroded is higher than ever. So as part of FAO's project, Building Resilience in the Sahel Region through Job Creation for Youth, the organization is piloting, piloting an approach aimed at bridging the humanitarian development and peace nexus while capitalizing on the huge potential of young people in the region. And as part of the project, one of the activities included, which we've partnered with ODI for, and for which the report is the outcome, was to analyze the potential triggers of young people's negative coping mechanisms in order to support regional programming focused on enhancing rural economies and youth employment. This is in the context of multi-layered crises, as we've already mentioned, and we'd like to partner jointly with various actors to have a holistic approach. The project itself and FAO at large regards youth not just as beneficiaries, but as partners and potential leaders in the process of building peace and sustainable development. Young people who have become active members of their societies will contribute to restoring the social contract that has been eroded by the insecurity I mentioned before. So just to finish and to pass on, let me just finish by saying thank you to all of the colleagues in ODI who collaborated with us on this report, and also thank the speakers for joining us today for the discussion and all of you for listening. Over to you, Rebecca. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Phillips, and thank you very much for outlining for us um, some of the challenges faced by young people um, in the region and some of those demographic trends. Uh, and I think it just wanted to pick up on the sort of one of your last comments was yes it's not just about young people being beneficiaries but about them being partners um i think that's that's really um important um thank you so without um further ado i would now like to um welcome and introduce um our keynote speaker um his excellency um ambassador yemdego eric tiare um, His Excellency the Ambassador is the Executive Secretary of the G5 Sahel um, since 2021, and he has over 30 years experience in the diplomatic sector, having previously been appointed permanent rep for Burkina Faso to the UN and permanent delegate of Burkina Faso to UNESCO, um, as well as um, various functions as Ambassador Extraordinaire um, to the French Republic, the Kingdom of Spain, Monaco, Portugal and the Holy See. Um, he holds a master's degree in public administration from the University of Quebec and a diploma from the National School of Administration and Magistry of Burkina, Burkina Faso uh, in the diplomacy section. Um, so your excellency, um, the floor is yours. 
I think we can't. We can't. Yes, do you hear me now? Thank you very much. Uh, uh, I thank the moderator for the invitation and for the introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to uh, thank you to take part in this important discussion about an important topic, which is uh, building up resilience through the creation of employment and jobs in the Sahel region. I've heard the data and uh, the figures that are very important and very um, um, and show that there are many risks. There are risks pertaining to uh, food security, climate change, uh, uh, terrorism, and so on and so forth. And the Sahel is also a place of opportunity, and it's full of human resources, natural resources, and cultural resources that are quite significant and abundant. So the challenge is to employ these resources for uh, public policies that can transform this potential into a fortune and uh, create jobs for uh, those particularly who live in rural and also uh, urban uh, regions and uh, urban areas. So uh, this objective is at the heart of the uh, development strategy uh, in the G5 uh, region and specifically speaking uh, this is an integrated strategy in which we uh, work on youth and the national or the action plan was approved in uh, December last year to uh, tackle issues pertaining to migration and radicalization and so on and so forth. And we are uh, convinced that the creation of jobs uh, will not only uh, fight issues pertaining to unemployment, but also contribute uh, that uh, or to, to the protection and resilience of these youth so that they are do not fall victims to radicalization and terrorism and uh, uh, we are uh, supporting these efforts and i can give you certain examples illustrating this uh, for example the uh, joint program uh, sahel to uh, deal with the uh, covid-19 repercussions and climate change in order to uh, reinforce the resilience of rural and vulnerable categories or people in uh, the region uh, this program targets 120,000 households and most of them are women and youth and uh, it contributes to the reduction of poverty in the region through the creation of uh, jobs and uh, opportunities the second program is uh, targeting women and uh, girls and aims at uh, reinforcing the resilience of uh, women and youth uh, women and girls sorry through uh, reinforcing the traditional farming uh, tra uh, traditional farming um, uh, systems and so on and so forth the third program is uh, support the resilience of uh, startups and small businesses in the g5 region uh, this is in partnership with the African uh, Bank of Development and uh, it's very recent project uh, uh, due to COVID-19. Uh, there, uh, there are 
problems uh, or rising problems with the small and medium enterprises. So we are trying to support the capacities and capabilities of these business leaders so that they uh, have access to microfinancing tools and thus uh, reinforce the creation of jobs and opportunities. It targets uh, young uh, people, young uh, business men and women uh, who are uh, aged below 40 years old and uh, uh, this program, we witness uh, that there is uh, not only gender parity, but a significant presence of women. The voice of the gentleman is not audible. Uh, sorry. We are unable to listen to the speaker. Apologies, Your Excellency, we can't hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, maybe a bit closer to the microphone. Now. We could we could hear you in the beginning, but then it just yeah, now we can. Yeah. Uh, I just said that this project uh, is fun funded uh, is four million dollar and it's uh, uh, executed by the union of uh, the uh, business or chambers in the Sahel region. Uh, this is an example that shows that uh, we are deeply concerned by creation of jobs and opportunities for youth so that they don't uh, they are not exposed to radicalization and violent extremism. Uh, can you ask the speaker please to slow down? Uh, it's less than 10% of the active population. Um, we are working on the digital technology, which has become a crucial technology in our space. To conclude, the, uh, I think all, all uh, or youth as a category is considered a very pivotal uh, age category, and uh, we are uh, focusing on them for the uh, development plan 2022-2024. And we are we need more resources to finance uh, uh, such policies that. Uh, uh, focus on job creation for youth uh, and uh, for a better future for our countries. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Your Excellency. And um, thank you as well for, for really presenting to us not only some of the, the challenges that in the region, but actually to highlight some of the opportunities um, and what's being done to, to harness those. Um, and I think it really speaks to the heart of what today's event is about, you know, to really explore how to support that economic transformation um, and engage young people. Um, and as you say, you, young people are a wealth um, of ideas um, and a wealth of imagination. So it's, it's really crucial that um, they are supported um, through initiatives such as to enable startups, et cetera, to, to help them um, fulfill some of their dreams and ambitions. Um, thank you so much, Your Excellency, um, for your for your intervention. Um, so now um, I'd like to hand over 
hand over to um, Lee, Lee Mayhew. So Lee is a research analyst um, in the Global Risks and Resilience team um, and one of the authors of the report, um, the report, The Intersection Between Socioeconomic Conditions and Youth Radicalization, Implications for Programming in the G5 Sahel Countries. Um, not the shortest of report titles, but um, I'm sure Lee will be giving us a succinct um, presentation on some of the key findings of the report. So Lee, over to you. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you to all our speakers so far. I'm just going to share my screen, so please let me know uh, if you don't see it. You should be able to see it now. Is that, is that, uh, sorry, is that up on the screen? Can everyone see that? I can see it. Great. I uh, hope the rest of the audience. <laughs> so um, as uh, Dr. Nadine and uh, Dr. Phillips have already outlined, um, this part of this, or one of the main reasons of holding this event is to publicize uh, the findings from uh, the new report. Um, and this report is very much uh, been a partnership between ourselves at ODI and FAO over the last 12 months to really try to understand um, how socioeconomic conditions um, influence youth radicalization within the G5 Sahel countries um, in order to try and sort of uptake lessons within uh, FEO's regional programming. Now, from, from the start, we, from our initial conversations we had with FEO around the report, we did discuss that often, or it is problematic approaching the, uh, the concept or problem issue of uh, youth radicalization through employment schemes. Um, and this is partly due to that poverty and other um, unemployment are often popular characteristics way of um, defining uh, at-risk categories of individuals. Um, and the danger here is that we can be sort of led down a path of um, predefined at-risk categories based on uh, individual social economic profiles. Um, and based on research that we had done uh, at ODI, but also um, wider research shows that individual characteristics are very rarely, um, sorry, individual characteristics removed from wider contextual factors rarely explain um, radicalization dynamics. So when we approached that report, we took a step back and we, we assessed the evidence and we were really looking for those wider contextual factors that influence youth radicalization in the Sahel. Um, in terms of the approach to the study, it, it had two aims. Firstly, um, as I was just describing, it was about understanding how socioeconomic conditions influence uh, youth radicalization within the G5 uh, Sahel countries. Secondly, the report was also practical in nature. So with this in mind, we developed a set of four recommendations um, that could be uptaken within FAO's regional programming. The report itself is based on um, two separate areas of, of evidence. The first was based on a literature review where we carried out a rapid evidence assessment of over 50 um, reports within the grey and academic literature covering radical, uh, radicalization dynamics uh, within the G5 Sahel countries and northern Nigeria. Now, the reason why we focused in on the G5 Sahel countries and northern Nigeria was that our sort of starting point for dry or understanding radicalization is that it's very much context driven. 
So we wanted the research and the evidence to reflect what was occurring within the countries that the, the regional programme was taking place in. We included Ni Northern Nigeria, which although isn't part of the regional programming, was due to the uh, impact of the Boko Haram um, insurgency on regions within Niger and Chad. Um, the second area was a light touch program review of two um, counter radicalization programs that had already been conducted in the region. And what we hope to do through this review by carrying out key informant interviews and uh, reviewing publicly available document, uh, documentation was to understand you know, what has worked and what hasn't in the past. Again, so those lessons could feed into the report and recommendations for, the, uh, for FAO. Now, the report has or concludes with key, um, six key learning points. The first of which is that drivers of radicalization in the Sahel are geographically specific. Now, the starting question for this project were what are the key drivers for radicalization in the Sahel? But when reviewing the evidence, it quickly became clear that the best way of framing the drivers of radicalization are spatially, and in analyzing them and combating them will have to be done. In, in accordance with that, that line of uh, thinking. It's clear that when you uh, review the radicalization dynamics in the Sahel, there are not only differences between countries, but also within countries and also sub-regions. So again, it was very important when we, so, so it was important for us to emphasize that rather than having a, a predefined set of um, radicalization dynamics that could be um, addressed throughout the region, each uh, region or sub-region, the, the radicalization dynamics that were occurring within those uh, sub-regional -region, areas needed to be addressed in that manner. The second is that women um, experience, participate in combat radicalization in ways that um, need further explore, um, or sorry, warrant closer attention. Um, like men, women engage uh, with armed groups in the region Sometimes this decision is, is forced and other times it is a decision taken by the individual. Um, what was interesting within the literature is that although there were motivations that overlapped with their male counterparts, there were also quite gender specific reasons as to why women join armed groups. For example, some of the roles that they undertook whilst um, being a member of an armed group allowed them a certain status or role that wouldn't necessarily be of be available to them within normal uh, everyday life. The in another interesting point that we learned was that although um, women are identified as key agents in recruitment and also again um, engaging with armed groups, often there was a difficulty um, in counter-radicalization pro programming in, in having sustained engagement of uh, female participants. Now, this was often to do with um, objections from um, sort of families to, to females uh, engaging within the programming. Some um, males wouldn't want to participate in counter-radicalization programs because of, uh, because of um, women being present. And also in some contexts where women were um, not key decision makers at the household and community level, there was often a reluctance um, for them to be more sort of forthcoming in their views. Now, the fourth key learning point 
was that common framings used um, to, to, to think about radicalization, radicalization may not always be applicable to the Sahel. We were, what we meant by, or what we mean by this, is that often radicalization um, in, is often viewed from the individual, you know, an individual pathway or, or an ind individual's decision. And yet what the evidence shows from the Sahel is that a reason for joining armed group is often attached to the community. You know, it's a decision that's not always taken by the individual, but at the community level. Communities will often support armed groups, perhaps due to perceived uh, uh, marginalization, um, experiences of violence, uh, long-seated uh, grievances, um, and also out of pro um, protection from um, outside threats. So one of the points that we stress within the report is when thinking about uh, drivers of radicalization in the Sahel, it's perhaps more accurate to ask why do communities support armed groups rather than simply trying to understand why an individual uh, decides to join an armed group. Um, the fifth key learning point was really applies to the scale and um, reach of a program. And why this is important is that when we reviewed um, or carried out the Light Touch program review, one of the criticisms within the, the, the program's uh, evaluation was that the program had already gone in and decided that youth was going to be the target of the programming. And the response from the wider community was that, well, the issues that you're trying to address in relation to, 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 to youth are also applicable to the, the community um, at large. And I think this point really speaks to this idea, again, that I mentioned in the beginning, that there isn't a single risk profile when we talk about some uh, you know, risk categories or those at risk of, of radicalization. You know, the evidence that we collected from the report showed that, yes, there were young people that joined armed groups, but there were also those individuals that fell outside of what would be defined as uh, the youth category that joined. There were people who, 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 yes, were unemployed who joined an armed group, but there were also those who joined armed groups who were already employed. There were people from um, back, uh, mixed uh, wealth backgrounds, and also there were those who had received religious education and also secular, secular education. So what became very clear is that it's very difficult because of these variations, it was very difficult for us to say that there was an overall pattern in the type of individuals um, that join these groups. So programming is really going to need to think about how it works across different social strata, age groups, and also gender, if it is to, to sort of have the desired impact. We also um, emphasise under key, uh, the key learning point five is that we're not only talking about inter-community tensions, but also intra-community tensions. For example, joining an armed group was often a way that young people um, could, um, sorry, uh, could challenge strict social hierarchies that govern some societies within the Sahel. Finally, learning point six points to the need for consistency and long-term vision within the programming. Um, one of the, the issues that has often been um, point or one of the critiques, sorry, of counter-radicalization programming has been that addressing um, radicalization through youth employment schemes can often lead to unmet expectations because this program is often short term or too short term to have that long impact in terms of creating those economic opportunities uh, for, for younger people. So what we sort of emphasised in, in key learning point six is that 
it would be perhaps better to sort of target longer economic um, development and also through that target the barriers that obstruct um, that obstruct decent economic opportunities for younger people. Now the report itself um, includes four key recommendations and as I said these recommendations are meant to be um, practical in nature to help um, not but help in terms of the uptake within the region uh, FEO's regional programming. Now the first recommendation really speaks to the the, the geographic specific nature of radicalization dynamics in CERT to help and that is that very different interventions will be needed in different places and this is obviously a challenge for a regional program but it is something that will need to be taken into account. Good context analysis. Now, this is something that appears throughout recommendations and reports, but given the nature of the topic that we're dealing with, it becomes ever more important. And we, we argue that it's on two fronts. It's not only looking at the economic constraints and opportunities that um, individuals face within the Sahel, it's also the politics and the institutional factors that act as a barrier to those as well. And again, I think the last two points really speak to, the, to this idea of the geographic specific nature of radicalization dynamics in the Sahel. You know, it's it's about programs. It'd be very difficult from a program to have a to have a strategy from the outset that doesn't change. And so it's about how the program learns to adapt throughout its lifetime. And it also means that it's very difficult to have a copy and paste approach across different countries. The second recommendation is that programs need to work on several issues with different people. And I think this speaks across several of the learning points, in particular, the point that there is no single risk profile in terms of the individual um, that becomes that, you know, that joins an armed group. It also speaks to the, the, the arguments that in terms of addressing radicalization in the Sahel, Focus needs to not be just on the individual or individual decision making, but again, why is the community, um, a, a community decides to support an armed group? You know, what are those underlying reasons or grievances that, that drive a community to, to offer that support? And again, going back to uh, women's engagement within um, counter-radicalization programs, the ones that we reviewed did have ambitious targets of you, you know a certain amount of women that they wanted to, um, to engage within their programming but really it needs to go further than just a number it needs to understand how women engage in radicalization and why and document these reasons and the lessons they learn through their programming because there was we noticed within the counter-radicalization programming evaluations an assumption that women were naturally uh, you know peacemakers but without any kind of explanation as to why so those lessons really need to be documented and explored within the programs. And finally, a focus on a small number of direct beneficiaries may exacerbate resent, uh, resentment. And I think this applies not only to inter-community relations, but also intra as well. The third recommendation is to engage closely with the state and other actors, but cautiously and strategically. Now this really points to uh, learning point three, which is that while the state is, is identified as a solution to radicalization within the Sahel, it is also part of the problem, whether it be through um, 
abuses are committed by security services or a lack of protection, meaning that communities have to res you know, resort to aligning with certain armed groups for protection. These are all factors that drive radicalization in Sahel. It's also, so it means that in terms of the trust, um, in terms of building trust in the program that the FAO uh, implements in the region, it really needs to think about how it builds that relationship with the state. And, 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 and different actors and how it can leverage its relationship with certain actors um, in changing certain institutions' uh, behaviour. And finally, recommend okay, recommendation four is to adopt a long-term outlook and focus on achievable objectives. Now, as I previously mentioned, Addressing something like youth employment through a counter-radicalisation programme um, presents challenges, particularly in terms of the timeframes, if it is a short-term programme. You know, we have to think you know, realistically, what is the long-term impact that's going to have on, on um, use of, on economic opportunities for, for, the, sort of, for, for youth? Um, also, given that the, the variation in the motivations um, and backgrounds of people that join armed groups, it may not be um, a realistic marker of success in terms of you know, assessing the, the success of the programme against the level of recruitment it, you know, in, into armed groups within the region. And finally, inclusivity should be not just be based on direct beneficiaries, but also how it targets the system as a whole. So rather thinking about just the number of people that are trained or the number of people in jobs, it should also about the uh, about wider um, systematic issues such as access to land rights, education, training, and sort of wider job opportunities. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lee, for that um, very informative presentation, and and I think you really highlight some important points. There. I mean. It's very clear, isn't it, that you know geography matters, um, you know, both both national but also at the local and, and community level, and and gender as well. I think you raised some important points there about not just including the focus on women for the sake of gender balance, but to really understand how um, women um, engage with um, radicalization. And I think also your your point about taking a systems approach. Um, I think that's that's very important um, and moving away from these sort of narrowly defined um, risk profiles. Um, and I think what you articulate there, actually, there's a lot of lessons for programming um, across the board, whether it be um, radicalization or climate or, or, or so on. That the idea that these sort of short term interventions um, that don't take into account the broader kind of political economy or the, the community ecosystem. Um, they're just not going to, to have the desired um, impacts. Um, so thank you very much, um, Lee, for that. Um, I'd now actually like to um, turn to our um, panellists um, to get some of their reflections um, on the report that's been presented um, and what we've heard um, so far today. So um, our first panellist um, is uh, Mr. Bulama Bukati who is a senior analyst within the Extremism Policy Unit at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change um, and a doctoral candidate um, at SOAS at the University of London. 
um, where he's researching Boko Haram through the lens of the laws of war. Um, <clears throat> his work focuses on the dynamics um, of violent extremist groups in sub-Saharan sub Africa. And Bilama is also a trained lawyer um, and holds a degree in common in Islamic law as well um, as a master's of law degree um, and has practiced um, human rights and employment lawyer in his native um, Nigeria um, for more than half a decade. Um, so we're delighted to have you um, as a panelist um, and would um, like to hear um, some of your thoughts um, on, on, your, on, on the report. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, this is uh, the most extensive introduction I have got recently. <laughs> <laughs> I, di I didn't want to miss anything out. You, you've done so much. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to ODI and uh, FAO uh, for this fantastic report and for holding this important conversation. Uh, I just want to uh, quickly um, speak to about five points in my five minutes, so hopefully a minute for each point. I might not get to the end of each. Uh, the first is to congratulate um, Lee and the team for a fantastic, fantastic report. And I'm not saying this as one of those standard eulogies for, for discussions. I take this uh, seriously because this is a serious endeavor. The the, the search for knowledge, but also for policy to influence policy, which is shaping human lives is a serious endeavor. And when I say it's a fantastic work, I mean it, not only because of the sound methodology, including how uh, on how studies were selected and justification for each point and choices in the report, but also for a practicable, practicable recommendations uh, for the report. I know this happened because uh, there was a program in mind, but I think this is very helpful, uh, especially because this report is online. Others who want to do stuff in the Sahel will be able to access this report and it's going to be invaluable to them. And so it's a report with all the rigors of an academic work, but without the budget of academic, boring academic theories uh, without practical implications. And uh, that's my first point. The second is the findings of the report, uh, the, uh, the six, uh, if you like, uh, dynamics that were identi identified, uh, the learning points and the recommendations are very good. Um, and I think what the report does uh, to me uh, in the first place is to demonstrate that there is quality research to act on already out there. And I say this because we, are, we have the tendency mostly of commissioning researches after researches after researches and of holding conversations without uh, practical actions on the ground. And whenever programs are conceived, we, we say, okay, let's conduct a research and it will take ages. I am not, I, as a researcher, I am not against research, but I am saying this report has demonstrated to us that there is already enough out there for us to act on. And so action is what we should be doing, even as we commission more researches. Now, when it comes to the specifics of the findings, uh, I completely agree with the uh, finding that uh, radicalization in the Sahel, but also across the world is context specific. And uh, it is non-lineal and it is fluid. But I think looking at the report, uh, two things jumped out to me, which can be overarching framing for the report. One of it, 
is already in the report. The other isn't uh, very much captured uh, in there. The one that is captured in the report is the role of the state as the facilitator of radicalization. When you look at the six dynamics, almost all of them are directly linked to failing states, uh, bad governance, uh, whether it's uh, need for protection, stuff around conflict over land and the dysfunction of state. Uh, I mean, just take any of them, you would see the role of the state glaringly clear. And we know that unfortunately, states in the Sahel are not getting better, especially with the military coups and the economy and uh, socioeconomic factors are not getting better either with, with the sanctions and the impact of COVID-19. And so um, this is something uh, that jumped out to me, but I mentioned it also because this is a low hanging fruit. States can easily do better and we can easily stop human rights abuses if we want. And I think this is uh, something we can address much more easily than other drivers of uh, radicalization. And I think the principle for states uh, in this space should be to do no harm, to not exacerbate the situations in the ground that lead young people to radicalization. And one more point I would make on this is actually that from my experience interacting with government officials in the Sahel, no one wants to fail. They are not failing because they want to fail. It is a question of lack of competence. And I think uh, organizations like the FAO and others here can do a lot in giving embedded technical support to state uh, uh, governments. Uh, when I say state, whether at the local level or at the national level, I think we can help them build their competence to, uh, competent, uh, competence to deliver by embedded support and other kind of support so that uh, they can deliver good governance to, to their people. Uh, and please remind me, Rebecca, when my time is up, I am still on the second point. The third point is around the idiom through which these frustrations captured in the report are expressed. And it is what is uh, touched in the report in the definition section, but not in the substance, which is the ideology. And I think this is important to uh, groups claiming to fight for Islam. Of course, it is these dynamics, but they are expressed in a religious idiom. In, uh, they are packaged as a religious fight. And I think if we want to succeed in this, we have to bear this in mind. I understand that that hasn't been extensively discussed in the report because it is out of the scope, but I thought it is important to mention because policymakers would need to bear that in mind and work with religious and uh, traditional leaders in addressing these, uh, these uh, factors, socioeconomic factors, which are expressed through a religious lens. We can revisit this some further if we, we had time at the end. Now, the fourth point is around societies being the key way to understanding radicalization, which I agree with uh, partly. Uh, I think this is especially true when we are talking about uh, groups that are non-jihadi. Uh, I, I mean, secular groups like politically driven groups, rebels, uh, ethnic groups, and others. But when it comes to groups uh, claiming to fight for Islam, they don't join those groups in my experience because of community support. In fact, in most cases, 
what we saw were them becoming social pariahs, communities isolating them, and that isolation pushing them more towards the spectrum of radicalization. There is a community role there, but it isn't positive. It's a negative community role that is then becoming a push uh, factor for many young people uh, in the communities. But I completely agree with communities being the key to radicalization when it comes to uh, secular groups, uh, particularly groups claiming to fight to defend uh, their people. And uh, the final point, my final point has actually skipped me and I think uh, I am just on time. I will stop here and uh, would mention it if there is an opportunity later. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vilema. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, no, perfectly on time. Um, I just wanted to sort of have a follow up um, question with, with you actually, um, particularly in sort of in relation to the development of, of programming. Um, I think the point that you raise as well about having in our in our minds this issue of do no harm, um, both whether these are our state policies or programs that are developed by by development actors. I mean, there are examples of where these if these are not properly thought through, we can be actually embedding um, risk um, into into um, into communities. But your work specifically um, has included looking at the reintegration of former combatants. Um, and there is evidence um, within the report that includes the criticism that counter radicalization programs sometimes fail to account for those who've already joined um, armed groups. Um, in your experience, um, is this a common issue within programming targeting youth radicalization? I mean, yes, uh, I, I suppose you mean those who have not already joined, and uh, that's that's uh, absolutely the case, uh, especially with government programs. So, for example, in places like Nigeria, uh, Cameroon, and Niger, what you do have are organized, uh, well-thought uh, programs for de-radicalization of young people that have already joined and reintegrating them back to communities. But what you don't see on the ground, especially on government uh, government part, but this is done uh, by some groups, uh, I mean, uh, organizations, especially international organizations, uh, like the one ambassador, the, His Excellency the Ambassador mentioned, uh, is this uh, targeting young people that have not joined. And governments have, or, uh, have always paid lip service to targeting young people that have not, not joined, but we haven't seen that being rolled out systematically uh, on the ground. And of course, uh, Lauren has given us data, His Excellency has given us caring data, if I may say. But I mean, there are more analysis. For example, the Tony Blair Institute's analysis shows that there would be 50 million jobs gap in Africa by the year 2040. By 2040, there will be at least 50 million African youth without a job. And there will be 450,000, uh, 50 million Africans in extreme poverty. This was analysis and prediction before COVID-19. And if we look at the socioeconomic factors Lee presented, then, I mean, we know that these numbers are going to have huge impact on peace and prosperity in Africa. And so I think what governments need to do is to make giving young people skills and jobs the very core of their existence at the topmost uh, ladder, ladder of the priority. But what we have today is 
governments mostly focusing on the military effort and paying lip service to targeting young people at the risk of that radicalization. And sorry, Rebecca, just one more point. What we actually found was this focus towards young people that have already joined disappoints communities and pushes them to think that governments are rewarding young people that have joined extremist groups by building their skills and giving them start, uh, start up capitals while young people who did not join are neglect, neglected. So it is like you are rewarding terrorism and criminality when you uh, focus on those who have joined and ignore those who haven't joined. Thank you. I think that's a really excellent point um, about how the perceptions of people are, are ignored at, at peril actually because like you say if people are perceiving the focus on on those people who've already joined is is rewarding that that criminality then 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 that that is that is and, and some of those figures that you you just mentioned you know 50 million jobs gap and like you say that was pre um covid and now we have this this new sort of risk landscape that we're in where we've not just got Countries are not just dealing with with the with radicalization or COVID, but you've got climate change and, and other economic shocks. Um, so yeah, and, and need to really better consider um, the perceptions um, of those involved and really talk to people. Um, thank you so much for that um, intervention. Um, I'd now like to move to our second panelist, to um, Abutan um, Harona who's a socio-anthropologist um, and a PhD student um, at LASDEL um, and the Abdu Mouni, sorry for the terrible pronunciation, University in Niger. Um, his research interests um, are focused on local development, decentralization, youth employment and security. Um, and he's worked extensively um, in the regions um, of Niger and has worked a lot on um, ODI um, programs with us. Um, so welcome. Um, can I just ask you, um, Abutan, to share some of your reflections? Merci, merci Rebecca. Uh, je dois rappeler uh, que je suis rattaché à un laboratoire de recherche. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, I uh, work for a lab, for uh, an institute called uh, ASPEL, and uh, we have worked with ODI in partnership with this institute based in uh, Miami uh, and uh, active in the region. Uh, my reflections regarding this uh, report or piece of research. Um, it's very positive. I think that uh, uh, it is based uh, on a very uh, refined and very deep analysis. Uh, uh, and uh, for that, uh, I would like to uh, thank uh, 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 FAO and ODI for uh, this opportunity to speak about radicalization and uh, uh, job and employment for youth. And I think that uh, um, what uh, ODI is doing uh, uh, is very positive in terms of contributing to a better uh, and in deeper look and understanding of uh, uh, what's happening in regions like Niger. And I've uh, uh, took part in uh, workshops uh, and uh, uh, activities about uh, the uh, uh, the economies of the region and uh, we have uh, uh, tackled certain key issues and uh, uh, 
uh, and the findings uh, are available on our website and we can share them with you. We have worked with ODI on uh, about the inclusion of youth uh, in uh, the uh, job market uh, and uh, uh, and that was also a very positive endeavor. And regarding the report itself, uh, I would like to jump on uh, three or four points uh, uh, that uh, Lay has developed. Uh, and uh, uh, he insisted on the specificities of radicalization in certain uh, countries and uh, the risk uh, that we uh, consider that to be uh, uh, one standard or one uh, homogeneous um, structure in the five countries. For example, in Niger, uh, there is uh, a radicalization in the East and uh, starting from 2018 or 2019, we have also uh, hotbeds of radicalization in the East as well. And within uh, Niger uh, itself, things are different from one area to the other because uh, the ideological discourse and the radicalization discourse uh, put forth by Boko Haram and by other uh, groups are quite divergent. And the uh, modus operandi uh, of these groups is also different uh, and divergent. So in order to uh, better address uh, these issues, we need, uh, as the report states, we need a good contextual analysis to better understand the uh, uh, the underlying reasons, drivers, and factors leading to radicalization of youth, and uh, uh, you know, since 2015 in Diva, uh, uh, and uh, we have the rise of Boko Haram in the east of the country, and the state has taken a set of measures um, that led. Uh, economically speaking and uh, uh, um, from employment perspective led to certain results. And you know that in this area, uh, youth uh, work in uh, fishery and uh, uh, basically this is the main economy, the main business for them. So uh, uh, access to uh, these lakes or to these uh, areas is just restricted. This is not done specifically by the state, but uh, by fear and terror and uh, uh, so um, uh, people have changed uh, uh, their uh, work uh, have tried to look for options for other options uh, so it it is not the loss of their job itself that led them to radicalization of course, it's one of the factors that we can uh, discuss and uh, we can maybe agree or disagree about, but it is not automatically um, the reason for radicalization or the loss of your job does not make you a terrorist or a violent uh, extremist. So there are grievances, there are corruption, uh, also uh, inter-community conflicts. And uh, uh, I think that this report has uh, clearly uh, focused on these ideas, on these points and arguments, and has refined them. And uh, uh, regarding the organization, uh, the food and agriculture organization, uh, what they are doing is important, but they, their work should be uh, guided by uh, analysis and by research. And uh, 
since a few decades in Niger, we are moving towards decentralization and more power to local collectivities. So, uh, so it's one of the uh, solutions for de-radicalization to empower uh, local authorities and local uh, structures because they best know their context and uh, they have uh, uh, a deep understanding of the issues and grievances existing in their area and that's why uh, organizations international organizations and governments have to focus on building partnerships with these uh, local structures uh, um, the other point that i need to mention is the implementation of projects and programs and recently we uh, have I have worked with a colleague to develop a, a, a baseline for a project aiming at the local engagement of youth. Uh, and till now, we did not uh, start the project because uh, either officials are still thinking about it in their uh, offices or they are waiting for instruction, uh, the instructions of the USAID because it is funded by the Americans. So uh, it is a five-year uh, project, but we are waiting for it to start since three years now. So you can see here uh, the uh, bureaucratic uh, obstacles and, or hurdles. Uh, and uh, what I want to say by this is that the implementation of uh, projects uh, uh, should be uh, done effectively and uh, in a, an urgent manner so that they uh, respond to the needs and also provide sustainable solutions. Uh, uh, many say, uh, many people say that it's towards the end of the project that I started understanding the objectives of the project. So I think proper planning, proper uh, uh, project uh, uh, project design and programmation is needed here to better deal with the uh, issues. Uh, and to go back to issues of radicalization, it's true that there are many programs in Niger uh, focusing on uh, this uh, plight and uh, the process of uh, de-radicalization of youth as uh, implemented uh, of course, there are, uh, there is a number of youth who have uh, joined armed groups and, uh, um, but, and uh, they have now abandoned uh, the uh, armed groups and uh, everyone knows about them and uh, uh, they are widely known uh, in their communities and uh, uh, maybe they are uh, exposed to vengeance or to retaliation. And we have to, uh, that's a real issue uh, uh, because it can hamper the process of de-radicalization for youth who are really uh, trying to abandon uh, weapons, to abandon uh, the uh, radicalized uh, pathway. Uh, I don't know if I still have time, but that's what I wanted to say. Thank you. Um Thank you very much. Um, and you raised some important points um, about um, programming more general. Um, I think many people can share with you um, some of the frustrations and, and challenges of the, the bureaucratic process of rolling out some of these um, programs. Um, but also you make an important point about um, not 
for example, not having a job does not make you um, does not make you, um, you you know a criminal. And and what I would just like to ask you. Un potential um, candidate à la radicalisation. Just. Yeah, does not make you a candidate for radicalization. Yes, exactly. And and just uh, the link, link to that, I just wanted to ask, but just briefly, because we are a bit tight on time, but what, what are the risks then of, of sort of implementing a region-wide program focused only on, on job creation? You know, you know, in Niger, for example, 80% uh, of the population, of youth population, uh, live in rural areas. So programs and uh, uh, projects that uh, uh, focus on job employment should take into account the rurality of our youth population. So in this regard, professional uh, training or vocational training uh, uh, welding, mechanical uh, professions, um, uh, plumber, so on and so forth. Uh, these are the activities that many organizations are focusing on. But uh, if uh, these projects target 50,000 uh, young person uh, in this region, and you allocate the resources for that. What's the purpose of that? Are they all going to be um, welders or mechanics or whatever? Uh, recently, we have uh, worked uh, on a project about the youth engagement of youth, and the idea was to go to the community level, discuss with youth, and uh, try to find or to understand the type of jobs and the type of mentorship that they need to get out of poverty and the uh, drastic or the, the, the very bad situation they live in. Uh, however, what, uh, uh, what they propose is rarely taken into account by the implemented project, projects and programs. So uh, these programs and projects say that they, we are bringing money and we are bringing new ideas and the locals accept because they see that there are um, there is money and there is an opportunity but the uh, end goal the end uh, or the objective ultimately is not really beneficial to them because that's not what they want and what they need so before uh, implementing the project uh, uh, in any region and with any type of youth we have to do proper uh, research and analysis to know what they need and uh, to understand what is available and what is not available and what uh, can really make a change and make an impact on the ground. Thank you very much. Yes, again, I think um, that importance of really understanding um, the needs rather than perhaps um, assuming um, what, what they are. Um, thank you. So now I'd like to turn to um, our final um, panelist, to Tamara uh, Neshkovic. Um, Tamara has over 20 years experience um, in develop development assistance programs in conflict and post-conflict areas of Europe, um, starting from the fall of the um, former Yugoslavia, Africa, Middle East and Asia. And she's more recently been working on security related projects um, such as violent extremism um, and war crimes. Um, 
She's authored a number of um, reports on counter-radicalization and violent extremism um, in the cell in Maghreb and has analyzed um, five years of interventions in nine countries involving over 20,000 participants. Um, wow. Um, so Tamara, um, can I invite you to share with us some of your um, reflections um, on the report and um, before we then turn to the audience um, to hear some questions from them. Tamara, over to you. Yes, thank you. Maybe first as a means of disclosure and before like giving too many compliments to the report, I should also say that uh, I have not met ODI before uh, this report has been worked on and I have not been involved obviously in its production or in any other kind of way. Because obviously I would like to compliment them for a really excellent report. It is extremely well researched. And actually, in my experience, this is one of the few, if not like very, very rare occasions where uh, a UN organization is actually doing a research, such a detailed research of uh, literature that has that is available in the academia before even launching into the programming. Uh, usually, with the UN uh, practice is that you do action oriented research once the project starts and then it's pretty much done in the haste. Whereas here what one can read from the report is that there is a like a ex extensive literature that has been analyzed and compared then for um, with practical information. Uh, that has been gleaned from the uh, programming documentation. So for that, I think like the report is extremely useful and the knowledge contained in there is extremely practical as well. I would definitely complement the approach of uh, uh, um, uh, analyzing drivers from a spatial point of view, because in my work on in these, this region, that's pretty much the direction we were moving into, like away from identifying person, individual risks, uh, or identifying uh, profiles that are at risk or can pose a threat for radicalization, and moving actually for, uh, to looking at the context and geography of certain countries. And also what the report is very good at pointing out is that one should not look at the drivers at the level of uh, a country, but also going deeper and drilling into the community level or even like um, a smaller unit. Uh, and I think that's extremely important for FAO or will be important for FAO when they start programming and looking into, into how to best develop strategies that are context specific. Obviously, when you read the report like this, uh, the complexity comes across immediately. And so one would think that FAO's job is practically impossible. There are too many recommendations to do, too many, uh, too many like uh, warning signals. So the challenge obviously is that uh, in the end, the FAO wants to work on um, socioeconomic issues and in particular employment issues. Yet the recommendation is that they should work on so many things with so many actors. And that is a daunting task, <laughs> extremely challenging, almost impossible. And yet it is what one needs to do in this region, practically in all regions, I would say, like in all projects, but in particular when something is as sensitive as radicalization and violent extremism. So the FAO will have the challenge of looking at everything as radicalization related, but per se, nothing is radicalization related. So if we talk about uh, structural issues, they are state related and developmental related. They're not per se maybe radicalization related. In other contexts, it will be more related to the conflict and criminality, but yet it, it ties up to the radicalization because if one does not remove these um, core grievances that the communities harbor, then there is always a risk. 
And in my experience, that was frequently like something that like you, you hear from people reflected on many occasions. So even if we are talking about like, um, let's say education, uh, there will be discussion about how, how radicalization can work in that context and how lack of education, in particular lack of awareness about let's say civic education can uh, actually um, make people ignorant about what the state's responsibilities are and what their responsibility is as maybe voters and participants in elections. So the, another uh, recommendation that came very clearly to me, based again on my experience, I think that FAO would be very smart to take it, is that FAO should be part of the change. Instead of thinking uh, which activities they should develop, which programs they should uh, implement in any of these countries, I think it would be much better investment if FAO indeed took this advice and actually identified interventions that are already implemented in these countries or are about to be implemented meaning identify the actors that are well known, have developed trust and, uh, and have a record on working of, on issues that FAO is interested in and FAO then should do well to support them. Because again, like um, the risk obviously when you're an international organization is like you wanna do well and you wanna make a change. But then <laughs> you leave after two, three years, seven years, uh, you have limited resources but the change is not time specific, it's not resource specific, and for sure it's left with the people. So whatever FAO does, or any other organization like Unicry, for instance, whatever they do, we are not going to be there long enough to understand what kind of effect this, uh, this has on local population, which means that in some cases the, the, um, the impetus given by the project can lead to very much positive change. In other cases, because of the volatility of the geopolitical context, the changes can be can be in the future leading to uh, certain dynamics which are completely undesirable and have not been predicted. So obviously then again, like um, one needs to be, keep in mind that flexibility and courage actually in programming are very important. So instead of planning for five years, uh, FAO would I think be well advised to plan for like a long-term change as the report in fact suggests, and then try to understand that whatever happens within the five time span, meaning like it can be, the, the implementation could be upset by terrorist attacks or conflict situation changing. Um, still, if you look at the long-term, that doesn't make any mu very much a difference because if they are able to adjust activities, keeping in mind the main objective in the long-term, uh, then the project will not suffer essentially. And the loss in terms of time or finances is minuscule com compared to what can be achieved in the long term. And the project again is very good at pointing out that, for instance, involving women, instead of focusing on numerical aspect of their involvement, one should analyze in which context they should best be involved and how they should best be involved. So is it that women should lead the change or is it that they should be participants? Is it the focus on women um, specific activities and interest? Or is it that they should be involved in processes that all, are all going and would tend, tendentially uh, target men? So I think the FAO, yeah, it's, it's a challenging job that they have. But I think that, yeah, all of the recommendations that are contained in the report make a lot of sense and are informed 
like well informed both from the this theoretical uh, research done and the practical experience that have uh, that we have already now thanks um, thank you very much, Tamara. And I think you raise um, some important points there, particularly about the complexity. And I think for so long we've we've heard, you know, the comp it's complex, it's difficult, it's challenging. I mean, not just in relation um, to this particular topic that we're talking about today, but whether you're talking about climate responses in, yeah. in fragile and conflict areas. It's the same thing. But actually, we're now at a situation where we I don't think we can keep saying, oh, well, it's complex. Therefore, we're just going to carry on business as usual. Actually, we need to be saying the risk landscape has changed. We need to be thinking differently. And that means a change, a paradigm shift, I think. Um, and that's, I suppose, what ODI is also calling for amongst um, development um, actors to really better understand um, the risk, the risk perceptions, the decision-making priorities, the trade-offs of some of those um, decisions. For example, the trade-off in just doing a short-term intervention. You really need to understand um, what that means in the long term. So thank you very much um, for that, um, that overview and assessment um, of the report. Um, I do have a question for you, but I'm just a bit conscious of time. So I feel um, it's a bit selfish of me to ask all the questions um, and should really um, see invite the audience um, to ask um, some questions. So I understand there's an, an opportunity for the audience to post in the Q&A. Um, I'm looking at that now and don't see any questions. Um, oh, sorry, there's one um, to his ambassador, the Excellencies. The question is whether... Mauritania is affected by the projects that were mentioned um, by the ambassador. Um, perhaps we can we can follow up with with that later. Um, I don't know if there's other questions that have perhaps accidentally been posted in the chat. If there are no questions then from the audience. I don't know if any of my colleagues can see any that I'm missing. No, well then perhaps I will ask you Tamara um, uh, my question. Um, so one of the findings in the report was um, the importance of understanding why communities support armed groups, not just individuals. So do you foresee any challenges to a community-led approach, sort of particularly in terms of resources or practical challenges, accounting for sort of these varying motivations for joining um, and remaining within with armed groups? I mean, you've touched on some of this, but perhaps. Yeah, uh, maybe I would say like, there, I see like two basic challenges and then also like some other problem, problems that surround community-led approaches. The first question would be obviously is our international organizations and in this case FAO um, are able to allow a project to be community led because what community led means is that you're passing the responsibility to a community and that means that also you're passing the decision making including for how the project should be implemented and also how the uh, the resources should be spent onto community and again to get there, one has to have developed a strong um, trust with the into the communities, but also a flexibility that not everything will go according to the plan. And I mean plan, when I say plan and the concept of time in the Western kind of sense, obviously. 
The other obviously uh, big challenge is that one should not put the full onus of responsibility on a community and community-led initiatives. For instance, many actors are involved and some of them are part of the community, but there are also like others whose absence are very much felt at the community level. And some other, um, the, um, the other in particular, Abdutan Haruna mentioned uh, the, the state uh, and also like the, the finances. So for instance, the state spends a lot of money on military, these states, I mean, like that we are talking about. So for instance, if you look at their expenditure, it tends to be like we looked at until 2019 and the, the percentage of uh, budget tends to be 10% uh, or more per country in Sahel spent on military, meaning that's money not invested, let's say in education or uh, in services that these people complain about. So the risk there is that uh, the state does not invest enough in the communities, but then we are talking about communities leading change when it comes to de-radicalization. So these kind of things, the concepts need to be like uh, cleaned up. So for instance, also another, then when it comes to the series of questions I would have is like for each project, for each intervention, one should define what a community is and also community in at the level of the of the country, family, ethnicity, tribe, and and at, while doing that, also thinking about the assumptions assumptions that we carry, and that actually your report very much spoke about. So, for instance, one of the leading assumptions that I had when coming into the project in Sahel was, for instance, land ownership. So we talk about land ownership and uh, um, disputes between pastoralists and the landowners. But then I was explained that in certain uh, areas of Mali, land ownership is a Western concept, which was introduced with the um, colonial system. And whereas the, the way land is managed is much, tends to be much different. So then again, like, okay, that's one assumption. The other assumption is like the borders. The tribes live sometimes uh, on both sides of the borders, yet there is importance of like securing the borders. So then how does that affect working with a community, with a community, one community, let's say Mauritania, <laughs> who is like um, covering large expanses. And then as well, like what is the concept like of values that we have and the concept that the communities have? So one should go into the project analyzing these assumptions. And again, as your project suggests, your research suggests, try to question them throughout the implementation. As new information comes in, which is context-specific, community-specific, then reevaluate the approach all along. Also, the resources that come with a project of this nature could challenge the dynamics and power structures of local communities, and that can have positive and negative benefits. In my experience, we had cases where um, uh, local civil society organizations um, changed their core activities in order to get funding that obviously was needed. So there are a number of things that one has to consider and a number of challenges, but a lot of them can be overcome if one relies on local knowledge and works through local organizations that are already established and have a certain prestige in the eyes of the communities. So as not to kind of do more harm than what we want to. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Tamar. And I think that is an important point about, yeah, what do we mean by community? Again, we sort of see this term 
talked about a lot, but yeah, to really understand the perceptions, the values. Um, and then also, I think a really important point that you highlight is who bears the responsibility for managing the risk? And 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 I think, yeah, sort of putting that on, on the communities, whatever that means, um, is 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 not um is not always the right approach. Well, I'm afraid that we're out of time. Um, and I would just really like to thank everybody um, for participating. Um, His Excellency the Ambassador, um, also um, to the FAO as well. Um, I think tomorrow and some of the other panelists pointed out um, it's it's sort of quite rare for the for a UN agency to want to uh, to, to interrogate um, um, the issue in in such a way as you say normally it's it's this type of activity happens whilst the um, the project is always already already underway. So thanks to um, the FAO for their um, initiative um, in this regard and sort of being a bit sort of um, foresight um, on it. Um, thank you so much as well to um, to the ambassador, His Excellency. Yemdego, Eric Tiare, thank you so much. And also to our wonderful um, panelists, um, to Belima, to Abutan and Tamaro, and also of course to Lee um, for his great um, presentation. Um, I think the presentation can be shared. Um, I'm not sure how we do that, but um, whether it's going to go on the website, but we can perhaps let people know. But thank you all to part for participating today. And thank you also to our interpreters. Um, who worked um, really hard throughout the event and to the um, AV um, support team as well. Thank you, everybody, and have a lovely day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.